This Advent season, we've been uh, looking at the prophets, and particularly uh, the prophet Isaiah. And uh, what we've seen is that the prophets uh, tended uh, to be uh, Israel's hopers, meaning that they called the nation of Israel to hope in something that was in the future. They were Israel's demanders, uh, arguing that we ought to live our lives in conformity uh, to God's will, but they were also Israel's summoners that we ought to change and repent of the way we've been living. In effect, they served as a wake-up call to God's people every time they wrote and they spoke, and that was certainly true of our passage here this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. So listen to God's Word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he shall shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful teaching and images that it provides us. So we pray that that you would capture our hearts by uh, your word this morning. Speak to us, because we desperately need to hear your voice. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you've uh, been over at our house, um, you may have noticed that we actually have uh, two trees that are called crepe myrtle trees uh, at our house. And they're beautiful trees that flower kind of in the late part of the spring, in the early summer, and they, they have these little petals. So if you shake the leaves, the petals will come down and it'll feel like it's snowing. Sometimes, uh, in the middle of the summer. And we have two of these trees. And, and when we first moved in uh, to our home, uh, both of them had grown, grown to be taller than our house. Um, and uh, one had grown inside of all the power lines. And there's a really interesting and kind of scary story about how we got them trimmed out. Uh, but each year, what we have to do is we have to go and trim these trees. And we had to do that that very first time. So we began to research crepe myrtles and how we, how we trim these trees. And And what we discovered is that the best time uh, to trim them each year is in February. 
And what we also learned is you can cut them pretty severely. You can really cut them down uh, in significant ways, and they will always grow back. So each year in February, we, we get the saw or we get a, we rent a chainsaw and we cut down uh, these crepe myrtle trees and we cut them a little farther down each year. And, and every year we said, we've done it. We've killed them this year. But every spring, if you look at the, at the, the branches, they start with these just, just kind of little mounds. And within a couple weeks, those little mounds bring forth shoots. And within two or three months, those shoots are long branches that end up flowering these beautiful flowers by late spring. The prophet Isaiah uses an image like this in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah, if you read his book, is always doing these sorts of things. He knows that pictures and and stories and images engage our imaginations and, and kind of find the back door of our hearts. And that's how he communicates his message. He realizes that image speaks to us in ways that bare and straight fact almost cannot really attach to our emotions. And so he uses this image of, of a branch or a shoot coming from a tree stump. And he imagines that God's people, the Israelites, are are like a great forest that has been cut down by foreign invaders. Uh, Imagine for a minute uh, a great forest that has been cut down in some sort of mining or uh, logging operation. And if you look all over the hills, all you see are, are tree stumps. And what Isaiah is saying is, is that, that's what you are. You are God's people who have been cut down like a great forest. Devastation is all around you. But in spite of all that devastation, look. In spite of all the devastation, there is hope because there is a shoot that is coming up from a stump. We don't need to be defined by devastation. Instead, we can be defined by hope. And I think what Isaiah is doing is he's communicating three things about this image. He says this branch or this shoot is a humble king, it is a righteous judge, and finally, it is a maker of peace. You see the first image in, in both verses 1 and 10, the bookends of the passage that I read this morning, and that is the image of a humble king. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Now, you might be wondering where I get the idea of kingship from this verse, because it doesn't use that word king or, or, the, or the title of kingship. But it all hangs on a a person who's mentioned in that passage, a name, and the name is Jesse. Jesse was uh, an Old Testament character who was from the town of Bethlehem. Long before Jesus was born to Bethlehem, Jesse was born and lived in Bethlehem. And what the Old Testament tells us is that he had two daughters and he had eight sons. He was a nondescript man. He was a man of of humble circumstances and humble means. He was uh, probably a shepherd who did uh, his duty as a shepherd and and taught his sons how to shepherd as well. And what the Old Testament tells us is that one day Samuel, the prophet of God, 
comes to Jesse, this humble man, and he says, one of your sons is going to be anointed the king of Israel. And after an interesting story, what happens is the runt of Jesse's litter, David, becomes anointed the king of Israel. And years later, we learn that David becomes the greatest king of Israel's history. He was the prototype king with which all other kings tried to live up to. So what is, what is Isaiah saying? He's saying, remember how God brought a great and powerful king from a humble and lowly circumstance. From humble and lowly Jesse came a great king. And what Isaiah is saying is, look, pay attention, wake up, because God is about to do it again. He's going to bring another great king from incredibly humble means. And when we come to the Christmas story, we're immediately reminded that the circumstances of Christ's birth were also humble and lowly. Jesus was born to, to teenage parents who had little to no money. His birth was surrounded by all sorts of of stress and anxiety and scandal. Few people even knew of his birth, let alone recognized his birth, aside from a handful of shepherds and astrologers. Little people even understood what had just happened. There was so much that was unrecognizable about the birth of Jesus. There was little pomp, there was little circumstances, circumstance, and yet Jesus would become the great king, the ultimate king, the king of all kings. What the Scriptures tell us is that He now reigns with God the Father, sitting at His right hand with all authority. But just as a shoot grows and, if it is tended well, becomes a great tree, so one day Jesus' kingship will reach its full growth and all will see it in its final consummation. That's what Isaiah is saying here in verse 10. He says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. You see, this shoot, this branch, will one day be recognized for its full authority. The nations will be signaled. They will be alerted. They shall see the authority of God stand tall above all other earthly authorities. And One day, he will bring to consummation his work of redemption And all those who are His will rest in His glory. So Jesus is this branch, this shoot that becomes a great king from humble circumstances. But what the passage also tells us is that He is a righteous judge. You can see it in verses 2 to 5. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of His waist and faithfulness the belt of of his loins. You see, despite coming from really humble circumstances, he is also a righteous judge who executes great power. Now, culturally, there may be no more uh, frustrating word than the word judgment. 
Nobody likes that word. As a culture, we like to reject that word entirely. And let me tell you, I understand why. I get it. Because we all know what it's like at times to feel misjudged. We all know what it's like to have people catch one short glimpse of our lives or overhear some side conversation and then make all sorts of ultimate judgments about who we are as people. And we all know what it's like because we all do it ourselves, or at least we're tempted to do it ourselves, to to rank the worth of people based on the little criteria that we know about them in order to somehow feel good about ourselves. And so we all hate judgment because in our experience, so much of it, so much of the judgment that's in our world is harsh and it's unfair and it's imperfect. But what Isaiah does is he shows us a judge who isn't like us. He shows us a judge who is righteous and perfect in all of his judgments. He judges with with perfect equity. He is incorruptible. His judgments are always right, and they were always true because he is perfect in his essence. You see, I think we wrestle with judgment and we wrestle with the concepts surrounding it because there is so much injustice in our world. Every day we deal with all sorts of racial and economic injustices. We see people who have committed crimes walk free, and we see those people who haven't committed crimes become arrested and serve sentences for crimes. I just listened to a podcast this week by a man named Michael Morton who spent over 36 years in prison for a crime that he never committed. So we deal with the imperfect and sometimes broken justice system that is around us. And it's like that because our world is marred by sin. And if our world is marred by sin, then our judgments and our sense of justice will be marred as well. It is a reality that we live in every single day because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. But what Isaiah says is one day true justice will reign because the righteous judge will come in all of his fullness. He's not a weak, ineffective, or imperfect judge, but instead he will come with all the full, perfect authority and power of God. Verse 4, in the second half, it says this, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The scriptures pull no punches. They make it very clear that there is a coming judgment, and it will be at the hands of Jesus, who is the perfect judge who makes no mistakes. Those who have violated his law will face justice. He will judge both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. And aside from the redemptive work of Christ, you and I will bear the punishment that we deserve. Because the true judge who sees all will come in righteousness and there will be a reckoning. 
Because in our sin, we are enemies of God who deserve that judgment. We will have to give an account to everything that we have thought, everything that we have said, everything that we have done. And so, if Jesus only came as a king and only came as a righteous judge, then you and I have every reason to fear the coming of God. But what the gospel tells us is that this branch, this shoot, also came as a maker of peace. And it speaks to that in verses 6 to 9. You see, the gospel tells us that our sin makes us enemies with God, that left to ourselves, we are unable to reconcile or work our way back to God. And so Jesus had to come to be a maker of peace. And what the gospel tells us is that once we accept that free gift of grace offered to us in Jesus by faith, then we no longer become enemies of God. Instead, we become friends of God. Better than that, we are adopted as family of God, sons and daughters of the King. Even though we are sinful and deserve the just punishment of our sins, we don't need to fear God any longer as a judge. Instead, we embrace Him as our Father. You see, friends, Christ came to make peace between us and God. And when that peace becomes a reality in our lives, it isn't just something for us individually But when it becomes a reality of our lives, it begins to spill out of us into the world around us, rolling back the effects of sin that is in our world. And it's at this point that I think Isaiah's images become the most vivid. They're so vivid that they're even hard for us to conceive. Listen to these words, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with a young goat. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, what Isaiah is saying here is that the created order, what we live in each day, our world is so charged with violence and aggressiveness and hostility that it is hard for us to even imagine a world that is defined by peace. We live in a world where bullies on a schoolyard look for children who are weak to pick on. We live in a world where the strong look to exploit and control and wield power over the weak. We often don't care who we step on when we climb the ladder of success and prosperity. We live in a city that has experienced well over 300 homicides in just one year. Violent crime, robberies, theft are all on the rise. 
We live in a world where nations arm themselves in the name of defense, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what Isaiah says is, now take all of that and imagine a world that is defined by peace. Imagine a world where infants don't just play with rattles, but they play with rattlesnakes. That's how vivid this image is. Where the predator and the prey run in the fields together with one another. Where you could walk on any street at any time of night in any city with no fear of danger whatsoever. A world where the inequities of race and culture and socioeconomic status have all been dissolved. A world where rival gang members sit down to enjoy Christmas Eve feast with one another. A world where police departments and judicial systems have become disbanded because there is absolutely no need for them any longer. Just imagine a world that is defined by perfect peace. Friends, the reality is that we live in between two advents. In Christ's first coming, in his first advent, he came as a humble, suffering king who gave his life so that we could be made right before God. He came to bring peace between God and man. And in that first coming, he started the work of peace in our hearts and in our world. But one day he will come again. One day there will be a second advent, and that is when the mighty king and the righteous judge will come in all of his fullness and in all of his glory. And he will roll back once and for all, all that has gone wrong in this world of sin. Listen to these words in description of what Jesus will bring at that second advent. The old enmities, the old appetites of the food chain, the old assumptions of the survival of the meanest, all of that is subverted. The wild will not stay vicious because the coming one, marked by righteousness and justice, will overrule raw power in the interest of new possibilities." Friends, we look forward in hope to the day where He will come in power and might and bring ultimate peace. But for now, we wait. For now, when we're in between those two advents, we wait. We rejoice in our salvation. We work for His kingdom to try to bring it to bear in our world right now. And we wait for the King who is coming. Let's pray.